Hey, good morning again, Redeemer. Good to see y'all. Can, I, can you get your Bibles or your phones or your tablets out? We're going to be in Jeremiah 29 this morning. As you make your way there, I'm going to tell you two things that are important from this passage. Uh, one, God's going to call Israel to uh, love people, the body of Christ in exile. He's also going to tell them in exile to love the place where they are in exile. So I'm going to tell you that pretty simply this morning. God's calling us to love people, to love the place where God has us, and I'll tell you how we're enabled to do that. This is God's word in Jeremiah 29. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elassah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for being a speaking God. Thank you for being an on-time God that in your sovereignty and your goodness, that you have brought people here this morning to hear uh, the word that Jeremiah has for us. And Father, in the way that Jeremiah is not the ultimate author of the letter, but he is uh, writing what you have placed upon his heart, Lord, I pray that you will be the author of our time together, that you will be pleased to use your servant to speak truth to your people, that we might be built up in the faith. Father, I pray that you will forgive my sins I pray that you will bind the evil one. Father, we know that he seeks to distract us with the cares of this world and with temptations. I pray, Lord, that you will 
keep him at bay that your people might see and hear from God. And I pray, Lord, for all of our hearts that we would receive your word. May it be implanted in there and may we ponder it and may it make us fruitful for every good work. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So uh, letters are important. In World War One, two billion letters crossed the English Channel. In World War Two, uh, letters were written from uh, family members at home to uh, our soldiers on the field. So many letters were written that the military had to borrow technology from England that would take handwritten letters, put them on microfilm, and put those microfilm on ships and on boats and on vessels to get them across the sea so that when they got on the other side, they could be um, decoded and, and put back in paper. So many letters were occupying space for things that the military needed that they needed to use that technology. Letters are helpful when you're separated, when distance separates lovers, Letters matter. Letters lifted the spirits of soldiers. They reminded them that people at home still loved them and cared for them. Letters written from soldiers to family members at home gave family members the assurance that our loved ones are still alive. And according to the U.S. Postal Service Museum, not all letters were good letters. Many young couples, married or about to be, found it impossible to maintain the intimacy they once shared. The number of Dear John letters received by soldiers whose place in a girl's affections had been taken by the guy who stayed at home is heartbreaking. So somebody stole a girl, you know, and you got notified of that in a letter. Letters carry weight when you're separated by distance. In our day and age, we text, we email, but you get the point. When we can't have physical presence and nearness, letters become a good medium. What you're reading right now is a letter inside of a letter. This is a letter. Look at chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of exiles and priests and prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. And so here's what's going on. Here's the backdrop. God's people were no longer in Jerusalem. The ones who stayed in Jerusalem, God told them, you will stay there to your demise. You will go into exile. I'm sending you, even though Nebuchadnezzar is taking you, and it is for judgment. And here's what we get in Jeremiah 29. You get a letter, and it says it was sent by Jeremiah. It does not say it was written by Jeremiah, because Jeremiah 1 says what? That Jeremiah is a prophet of the Most High God, and he will speak and write whatever Yahweh tells him to write. So Jeremiah is just a copyist, and he puts the letter in the hands of two men to take this letter hundreds of miles to God's people who, because of their sin, are not near to God. They, are, they have been cast out, and God Almighty writes them. 
Now, imagine being Israel on the other side of this letter that's sent from God. You know what's going through your mind? I bet you can hear a pin drop. What is he about to say to us? Does he still love us? Has he forgotten us? Are we still his people? How do we live in exile? When we're separated from our God. On top of this, if you look at the context of it, God is telling them, look right there at verse eight. He says, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Look down at 15 through uh, chapter verse 15 through 23. He is proclaiming judgment against false prophets. So not only are they separated from God by distance, but over here in Babylon, false prophets are in their ears. It's going to be short. It's not going to be long. God says this. He says, no, I didn't. I ain't say none of that. A matter of fact, all three of y'all false prophets, y'all are dead. It's in this backdrop that God says, let me write to my people. Let me speak to my exiles. And they are not forgotten. And they are still mine. And here is what I want you to do and be in exile. Now, I know we're tempted to read this and we think, okay, Pastor L, what they got to do with us? We're not in Babylon. We're not in exile. Yes, you are. You see, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, speaks of those who trust in Christ as exiles and strangers on this earth. When Peter writes in 1 Peter, four different times he calls those he is writing to elect exiles or strangers on the earth. We know what it's like to live in a land that's not our ultimate home. And how we wish we could see Jesus face to face. And how we wish that we could be in the new heavens and the new earth, but we're not there. And so we're forced to, just like those exiles in Jeremiah, to wrestle with these questions. Who do you call me to be until you bring me home? What do you want to see formed in my heart? What priorities should I have in this life until the next one breaks in? And so as we think about our mission and vision statement, there are two aspects I want to focus on this morning. One is that we are a community of Christians. And the second aspect is that we're committed to loving the places where God has us. You'll notice Broadmoor, Broadmeadow, the city of Jackson, and the world. I want to hold those two things up for you that say God calls us in our exile to love the body and to love the places where God has us. I think it's that simple. You see, I think the mission and vision of the church dovetails into the mission and vision of the kingdom. And our, our vision can't be so complex that even the youngest of children, they can't obey it. That our mission and vision has to be broad enough and beautiful enough that those who are indwelled by the Spirit can lean into this. So I want to show you in the passage that God is telling them in their exile 
to continue loving, being, and growing the covenant community. And he's telling them to continue caring for the places where you are, even in exile. What do I mean by continue loving, being, and growing the covenant community in exile? I'm intentionally using the word continue because if you read uh, that section right there in verse 5 where it says build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Why am I saying continue? I'm saying continue because if you remember what Brian just read, this sounds a lot like Genesis, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like Genesis 1 when God gave Adam and Eve dominion over all things. They were to be planters. They were to cultivate. They were to add beauty and order and structure to the world. And they were to be fruitful. And they were to, be mul- to multiply. And they were to fill the earth. It's the same thing you see after the flood. God tells Noah the same thing again. I've given you these plants. Be fruitful and multiply. It's the promise he made to Abraham. I'm giving you land and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. It's the same thing that Israel did when they were in Exodus. Though Pharaoh tried to kill them, they multiplied. That what you're starting to see in the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to Jeremiah 29 God's program for Israel has been the same. Grow the covenant community. Love the covenant community. Be a part of the covenant community. In other words, what God is telling Israel in exile, your location may change, but the program is always the same. And I think that's important because Redeemer is a transient church. It's transient because people come and people go. It's transient because seminary students come and they go. It's transient because people at UMC come and they go. And here's the thing I'm telling everyone in the room. I don't care where you live or where you move to or how old you are or what stage you are in life. The program is always the same. Love and be a part of and grow the body of Christ. Now, here's what he tells them. He says, build houses, which means you're going to be there for a while. Seventy years. Those little makeshift huts, it ain't going to work. I need you to take some timber. I need you to build some houses. I need you to go plant a garden. And I need you to rotate your crops because you're going to be right here in Babylon for a while. Don't let your false prophets tell you anything different. Well, why? Why do they need to build houses? Why plant plants? Why eat fruit? Because God wants them alive. He wants them to image him, create and cultivate so that you can get to the bottom of this verse where it says, get married, have children, and have your daughters marry their sons, and they have children. And you keep doing this and you grow. Now, I've not married my daughter off yet, but I've done a lot of weddings. And here's what I've learned about weddings. They grow families. 
this bride has a father and a mother and siblings and aunties and grandparents and cousins. And this groom over here has parents and grandparents and aunties and siblings and cousins. And when these two people fall in love, that's what God is commanding, fall in love, cherish marriage. What happens to the two parents of the bride and the groom? All of a sudden, your relational network has just gotten deeper with these people more than any other people on the earth because by virtue of your child who now is a part of their family and they're a part of your family, in other words, what God is telling Israel, grow the family. When you get married, it's an investment. When you get married, those are deep ties being formed between people who were not deeply formed and tied together. Now why? Of all commands, why would God tell Israel to do that? It's because we're made in God's image. That God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That means that God is one, but he's three persons. And he abides in community. And the father loves the son and trusts the son and cares for the son. And the spirit loves the father and cares for the father and serves the father and knows the father. And Jesus knows the Father and the Son. He is known and he knows. And so when God makes us in his image, he programs us with this desire and deep longing for connection and knowing and sharing and listening and serving and giving. That's what God is telling them. When you go into exile, you will not make it out alone. Exile is going to be hard. And they're going to be against you. And the values of where you are, they're against me. And what I want you to do is to be a small family inside of that family. I want you to go deep with each other so much so that you will give your son to somebody else's daughter and you will be family. Marva Don wrote, human beings are especially created to image God, and a significant part of imaging him is fellowship. Our relationship with each other models the Trinity. This longing for fellowship and belonging is stamped in the fabric of our souls. We long to be seen and to see others from the earliest moments of human develop, development, whether in our living rooms or the playground, we long for connection, an immediate felt experience of closeness to one another. When my daughter was three, she came home one day and she got off the bus and she was crying. And I said, baby, what's wrong? And she says, so-and-so, Catherine, didn't play with me today. She's three. I'm going to tell you the first thing I said, and I had to come back and correct it. The first thing I said was, well, forget Catherine. 
How many more kids in the classroom? You just play with somebody else, right? But that's unloving. That's me not listening to what she was really saying. What she was really saying is, Dad, she didn't see me today. Or she saw me and she ignored me. And it hurt. Dad, I sat at the table by myself today. And I didn't like that. Why would a three-year-old girl get off the bus and cry because another three-year-old didn't play with her? It's because God has wired us for connection. We come here wanting to be seen, wanting to be known, wanting to be heard. We want to matter. Because in the Trinity, all persons matter. Here's what this means for us, Redeemer. Doesn't matter what season of life you're in, or where you live, or how old you are. God wired you to know and to be known. He wired you to care for this body and the people in here. It's okay. She can cry. He can cry. It's all good. I promise you. Here's a question. Who knows your deepest longings in the body? Who knows your story? Who knows what you struggle with? Who knows your doubts? Who knows your thorn in the flesh? Who knows the way that Satan gnaws at you? Who enters into your joy and celebrates with you? Who grieves with you? Who can you call when life isn't making sense and you're struggling? Who can come to your house? And walk in your house without knocking and go into your refrigerator and grab some food and they don't have to tell you they're coming. That's kind of what God is calling us to be. To have deep relationships with each other in here. Man, I remember the early days of Redeemer, and I, and, and I guarantee you, you can probably ask about 80 of us in this room, man, when Redeemer was planted, we lived right next door. I mean, like right next door. And we would walk, walk to church, and when my wife would cook, either that Saturday night or that, that early Sunday morning, she would always cook extra food. And we would just come into the church, and we would find somebody, you back there, can you come have dinner with us right after church? Here's the thing. And we learned that from other people in here who did that. Somebody new show up, we, we, we running towards them. We want you to be connected. We turned down, we turned down multiple families on Sundays because so many people were coming towards us to say, hey, can we have table fellowship? 
I'm telling you the truth. What happens along the way when we stop doing that? We just stop. And we wonder why people feel disconnected. We'll make room in a pew, but not room at a table. What would it look like to do that? To go deep within this body? And I know there's an aspect of this command that some of us can't do physically. I know some of us, when we read this passage where he says, get married, you're like, thanks, L. I've been trying that and I ain't even dating nobody. Thank you. Way to, way to make me feel worse, right? Some of you, I know you want kids. And the Lord hadn't given them to you. And some of you have buried husbands. And you're like, man, help me understand. You do have family. And you're looking at them. And it's on us to make room for you at the table. And you can be aunts and uncles. You can disciple our kids. You can call those in the body who might not be linked to you by blood, but were linked to you by the blood of another, and it's Jesus Christ. And you can have children. You can share the good news. And you can disciple young girls, and you can disciple young men who are not your biological children. And you can present them holy and blameless to the Lord Jesus. And you can be a daughter and have older mothers in this room who will let you cry on their shoulders. And you can be a son, and you can have older men in this room who will teach you the truth and love. You see, what's behind the commandment is not just biological connection. What's behind the commandment for us and through the cross is a salvific connection. You're looking at brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in this room. And God is telling us in exile while we wait, love this body, cherish this body, befriend this body. You will not make it home alone. Second point. Continue caring for the place where you are in exile. So I would probably translate verse 7 a little differently. Instead of the but, I would put an and. So in addition to loving the covenant community and growing it and building it and having deep connection there, God adds an and. And the and is seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, I suppose that if you're living in Babylon, that, that, that they could have taken multiple postures towards the city. They could have used the city. 
Let's squeeze it for all it's worth. They could blend in with the city. Let's embrace the values of the city. Let's lose our peculiar identity. And this is kind of what happened to Lot and his wife when they went to Sodom and Gomorrah. It almost cost them their lives, definitely his wife's life. They could, in theory, complain about the city. They could spend their days reminiscing on how great and beautiful Jerusalem was and how good they had it. They could spend their days comparing everything in Babylon to everything they used to have, and they could grieve and stay in this perpetual depression over this new thing that is so much worse than this old thing. They could withdraw from the city and just do them. This is what we'll do. We'll get a piece of chalk and own this house, on this brick wall you call me to build. I'm going to put up these strikes. And you just told me it's going to be 70 years, so I'm counting them down. Year one, year two, year three, year four. And they could just kind of be there loathing all of it. I suppose they could stay in their Jewish circles and only do business with other Jews. I suppose they could try to overthrow the city. This is what Pharaoh was afraid of in Exodus. And that ain't what God told them to do. Don't use it. Don't abuse it. Don't blend in, don't gripe, don't withdraw, don't try to overtake. Your posture is a patient servant of the city. Patient because God is saying, you're going to be there 70 years. You're not getting out of there overnight. And then he says, serve it. Seek the welfare of the city. That word for welfare is the word shalom. It's the peace, the goodness, the wholeness, the restoration. Like, seek after that. And so not only is this a command in the plural, but you all must seek. But linguistically, there's something else here. Notice that word seek, welfare, and pray. Those three words, they're all used right up there in verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So seek, shalom, pray. Now look down in verse 11 and through 13. You see these same words. For I know the plans I have for you. This means God is at work. I'm at work and I'm working something out. I got a plan I'm working out. I'm going to give you a new heart and you, I will replace that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And in that day, in the future, you will then seek me with your whole heart. But notice the vocabulary. It's the same vocabulary. God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare. Same word for up in verse 7. Then you will call upon me. You will come and you will pray to me, right? The Lord says, pray for the city on its behalf down there. He says, you will come and you will pray to me and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. You see what the vocabulary of Jeremiah 29 is saying? You seek me. You pray to me. And I know your deepest longing is to want shalom. And what God says, I want you to match that intensity and desire 
with how you see the city. You seek the shalom of the city. And you pray for the shalom of the city. Do y'all see what God is saying? That what you want is what I want you to want for them. What I'm up to for you is what I want you to be up to for them. That this is remarkable. One scholar says that this is without parallel in any literature from antiquity. The exiles in Babylon were to live normal lives, even praying for the people who slaughtered them. Whoa. That's powerful. This is what it means. Wherever you live, your place matters. And the people around you matter. Whether it's Ghost Town, or Lakeover, or Woodley, or Woodhaven, or Barrington Woods, or Eastover, or the Bottom, or Presidential Hills, or the Queens, or Heatherwood, or Rollingwood, or Broadmoor, or Broadmeadow, or Canton, or Ridgeland, or Clinton, or Camden, or Vernon Edition, or Pearl, or Byram, or Flowood, you name it, the program is always the same. We're to love the body of Christ, and we are to be seekers of shalom wherever our feet stand whether we're in Babylon or in Jerusalem. The reason we love this community is because our church is here and the people around here matter. And the shalom of this community matters. And the shalom of where you live and where you work and where you shop God is concerned there too. Our theology of place demands that wherever we are, we want shalom. Where is the most fracture in your sphere of influence? I think God is calling you to love that place to life. Anthony Bradley makes this distinction between what he calls the Great Commission Christianity that has kind of lulled evangelicalism to sleep, where it is only uh, consumed or concerned about a person and their right relationship with God. And he makes a difference between that and cosmic redemptive Christianity. In cosmic redemptive Christianity, he writes through the person and work of Jesus. God fully accomplishes salvation for us. He rescues us from judgment for sin and to fellowship with him. And then he restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. And he goes on to write about this redemptive, this cosmic redemptive Christianity that is concerned not just about you and your walk with the Lord, but it's concerned about safety. 
It's concerned about clean drinking water. It's concerned about education. It's concerned about crime. It's concerned about injustice because God is making all things new, not just you and your little salvation. He's going to make the whole cosmos new where there is nothing evil, nothing harmful, nothing bad. And when the gospel breaks into our lives here and there, we then begin caring not only about souls and futures, we start to care about the present and right now and we want to see the kingdom of God come to bear right now and so we grieve when we see murders and we grieve over abortions and we grieve over all of these things that happen in the world and we don't stand on the sideline and say the government got to fix it. We say we're salt and we're light And God calls me to love these people and these places where my feet are that they might live. And so what gifts has God given you, Redeemer, to love this world to life? How can you steward what you do day in and day out to love these places to life. And when you go back and look at history, you look at John Calvin and the way that he loved Geneva. You look at Thomas Chalmers and the way that he loved Scotland, the way that he cared for the poor. The way that he taught kids who couldn't read how to read the Bible so that they can think big thoughts after God. That when you read about black pastors in 1880, Matthew Anderson, who planted Berean Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, and he launched six commandment-related ministries, including a savings bank, a building and loan association, a manual training school, a medical dispensary, and a kindergarten. When you look at the early church, when it was legal in Rome to throw your babies out in a trash heap, it was the Council of Nicaea who said that every Christian community needed to have a place where those abandoned children can be cared for. It was the church. And sadly, we have bought into the lie that all God wants to do is save your soul, get you to heaven, to hell with this world. That ain't it. He says, love the body and love and seek the shalom of the places that I send you to. Where's the power to live like this? How do we begin to seek the Lord with our whole heart? And as we seek him with our whole heart and find him, we're changed by him. Like, like, like where does the power to do this come from? comes from Christ. You see, here's what the gospel says to you and I. The earth is Jesus' footstool. It's not his native home. His native home 
is in eternity with the Father and the Spirit forever. And the Bible tells us that Jesus himself went on a self-induced exile to leave home and to come to this earth. And he loved the church. He loved the temple. He loved, I mean, can you think about what it's like to be tempted to beg your father to take this cup away and to call your homies and say, man, can we sing some of the songs together? Can y'all pray with me? That what you start to see in Jesus is this beautiful love for the family of God. He told his own mother that my family, my mother and my father, it's not those out there. It's those in here who do the will of the Father who sent me. That Jesus loved the body and was known by the body and knew the body and saved to, and died to rescue the body. So he models for us what it means to live in community. That he had nowhere to lay his head. That he lived this interdependent and beautiful life loving believers. And he birthed children not because he got married to someone but because he by the Spirit was able to bring people to the newness of life and Holy Spirit opened eyes so that sons and daughters came into the kingdom that our Savior is making us sons and daughters of the King and Jesus loved the place where he sent us. He, he came, he grieved over Jerusalem. When he saw what was happening in the temple where the Gentiles couldn't worship, he overturned tables. His heart wept for Jerusalem. He loved this place. Now, why on the world would he leave to come here? It's because you and I, if we're really honest, we'd rather hide than live in community. And we'd rather click up in our silos than to love across difference. And we'd rather turn our noses up at systems and people and places out there and wag our fingers at them. Can't y'all just get it together? That is us until we realize that we were them. And he came in exile to bring you home he came in exile. He prayed for his enemies. God tells them to pray for the people who are killing you. And Jesus says, I'm going to one-up you. I'm going to pray for those who kill me, and I'm going to die for them. Why? To bring us home. When that starts to get in our hearts, and we see the way Jesus lived in exile, and we see that we were his enemies and he moved towards us, he prays for us, he dies for us. When we see his steward, stewardship of place, when we see that we were the apple of his eye, when we start to get a, 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 a grasp of all of this, you know what it does? It changes us. So I'm not saying Redeemer, try harder. What I'm saying is Redeemer, Know your Redeemer. Know his heart. Be acquainted with the way that he lives. And if his spirit is in you, 
you will want to walk in step with him. May that be for me. May I love you. May I be known by you. And may you know me. And may that be true for you. And may we love wherever God has us. You stay over here, may you love it. You stay over there, may you love it. You drive 30 minutes, may you love this place and that place. May that be true for us. Let's pray. Father, we bless your name. We commit our time to you. Thank you, Jesus, for faithfully loving us in redemption. Thank you for the home that you have in store for us. Teach us, Lord, to number our days and to steward our relationships and our time and our places to your glory and honor. Help us, Lord, to love this world to life through the preaching of good, the good news, through proclaiming the good news in word and in deed, as Titus reminds us. Give us grace, we pray, for your namesake. Amen.